Hey, hey, welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm your host, Tom Morcus, and today I sit down with Nir Ayal. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And today I sat down with Nir to talk about his most recent book, Indistractable. So first and foremost, I'm going to say, pick up your copy of the book. You can get it at any bookstore or Amazon. Just search Indistractable. It's definitely worth it. In today's conversation, we focus on a few of the major areas from the book, including internal and external triggers, like what actually causes the distraction in the first place, and then ways that we can kind of organize our day, organize our calendar, organize our time to get the most out of each day, become productive, and be the type of person we want to be, you know, which is, of course, indistractable, right? And my big takeaway from today's conversation is that there will always be distractions, and the biggest thing is just to be aware of them that they will happen, they will occur. And so you never can rid yourself entirely of distractions. It's just something that we do as humans. But there are ways that you can organize your environment and you can rethink about things and reframe things so that you can be more effective in life. And so that is definitely my big takeaway. And so I'll leave it at that. Without further ado, let's get to today's conversation. So Nir, let's just start with why you wrote this book. Tell me about the genesis of Indistractable. Yeah, so Indistractable came out of a struggle that I myself had with distraction and that I think I followed uh, the normal course of how most people uh, think about this problem. I blamed technology at first and thought it was all tech's fault. And uh, then the more I dove into this topic, I realized that actually there's a much more interesting root cause uh, that that was at the bottom of distraction. I think maybe that's the part that people don't uh, go far enough. Most people kind of just stop it there. <laughs> and, and that's what most books will tell you about uh, distraction and technology. And they'll say it's addictive, that it's hijacking your brain, etc. But um, that just didn't prove true to me. Uh, I got rid of my technology. I got rid of my apps. I got rid of uh, my internet connection and I still got distracted. And so I really wanted to get to the bottom of why do we get distracted? What, what's the deeper psychology there so that we could finally put it in its place? And so you started doing this research again from the basis of, you know, knowing, understanding the last book, which I've definitely recommended, I think on this podcast before as well, but it was, it was about how to create habit forming software, habit forming things, we'll say even just like products. And, um, and so now all of a sudden those habit forming products are, are bringing people in again and again and again, much to maybe their own dismay. And they might not even, and sometimes they realize it, sometimes they don't. Um, but, and that's, that's what you're talking about when it comes to distraction. So it's like the, what you taught and hooked applied effectively can kind of lead to this case, this, this scenario now where some people are like, how do I, how do I now get away from these things that, that have been engineered so well to create these habits? Yeah. So the, the case studies that I drew upon, the companies that I looked at to show uh, how to use these techniques are the companies that everybody thinks about when they think about distraction, right? Companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and the news. And you know these products are clearly designed to be engaging, but I would argue that's a good thing. Um, do we want Netflix to make crappy shows? Is that the idea? Do should we tell uh, the iPhone makers, you know, should we tell Apple, please don't make your product so user friendly? I want to use it too much. Should we tell Facebook, you know, your product is so engaging, I I I, I use it too much? I think that's silly. 
<laughs> what the hell are we complaining about? Mm. This, you know, a few years ago, we were complaining about how tech is too hard to use and only nerds know how to use it. Well, now that the tech designers have given us products that we like to use and are user-friendly, now we're complaining we use it too much. So I think the approach is to stop whining and start doing something about it. 100%. Uh, if we hold our breath, waiting for the tech companies to change, we're going to suffocate. And so that's really what I wanted to do with, with Indistractable uh, is that I found that, you know, it's just so convenient. You know, it's just another thing that we have medicalized, uh, that we've turned into this another term that, that is so overused that it means nothing. Now, everything is addictive, right? Everything's addicting your brain. Everything is hijacking your brain. And it's bullshit. It's not true. And in fact, talking this way, turns out, uh, makes it true. That it turns out that the number one attribute of someone who will recover from an alcohol addiction is not their level of physical dependency. It's their own belief in their power to change. And so then this isn't me speaking. This is studies who have found this. And the same thing goes with all sorts of things. If we just blame external factors, then that's what's causing us to become distracted. That's what's causing us to become so-called addicted. That's causing us to be, you know, our brains to be hijacked. Well, then it becomes true. It's called learned helplessness. And, and I don't think that's, that's really helpful. So I wanted to offer an alternative narrative um, that acknowledges that, yes, if you are looking for distraction, you will certainly find it these days because technology is so pervasive and is designed to be so persuasive that if you are looking for distraction, then clearly you will find it. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're powerless. And in fact, uh, you know, I was patient zero here. I was trying to figure out solutions for myself. And I realized that once you understand the deeper psychology of distraction, you can get it under control and you can make sure you can get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. Well, let's talk about that for a second then. What, what are kind of those, those fundamental principles of, of distraction, we'll say? Yeah. And then, and then we can talk about how we can kind of combat that. Sure, sure. So to understand distraction, the best place to start is to understand what distraction is not. So what is the opposite of distraction? The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. And if you look at the etymology of both words, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter words, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. So if what you want to do is go on YouTube and watch a funny video or learn something or discuss a topic on Reddit or watch ESPN, do it. Great. Enjoy it. Who says that playing Candy Crush is morally inferior than watching three hours of football on TV? or watching Fox News. What's the difference? There's no difference. If it's something you plan to do with intent, do it, enjoy it, don't feel guilty about it. However, the opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls us away from what we plan to do, things that we don't do with intent. And so this is where distraction can really be a problem, even when we think it's something good, right? How many times have we sat down at our desk and we say, ooh, I'm definitely going to work on that big project. I'm definitely going to do that thing I've been delaying. I'm going to do my taxes. I'm going to do this report. I'm going to write up that thing I've been putting off right after I check email, right? Right after I look at that Slack channel, right after I have that gossip conversation with one of my colleagues. And so even if it seems like something kind of productive, right? Having a conversation with my colleagues is a good thing. Uh, checking email is a good thing. No. If it's not what you plan to do with your time, it is just as much of a pernicious distraction as playing a video game and watching a YouTube video. So my goal is not to stand up high and say, oh, you know, technology is bad and Facebook is bad and Instagram is bad. 
If whatever it is you want to do with your time, you should do it. But I want to help you do it on your schedule as opposed to the app maker's schedule or somebody else's schedule. I want to help you live up to your values according to what you say you want to do with your time. So that's the first step is just to distinguish between traction and distraction. Well, so yeah, well, I actually I do want you to break it down because I was going to actually ask about like those internal versus external triggers, but we'll probably get to that in a second. So, so yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's the next step, right? So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what leads us towards traction and distraction? Two things. We have external triggers and we have internal triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of the usual suspects that can lead us towards traction or distraction. Now, I don't think all these external triggers are necessarily bad. If you have an alarm on your phone that says, hey, it's time to work out, it's time to do that big project, it's time to go to that meeting, great, right? That's helpful. That's moving you towards something you wanted to do that you plan to do with your time. It's moving you towards traction. However, if that notification is leading you towards something you didn't plan to do, well, now it's moving you towards distraction. So what do we do? Well, we can hack back those external triggers not just on our phone, not just on our computer, that's kindergarten stuff. We also need to hack back the external triggers that are all around us. For example, in the workplace, how much time do we waste on stupid emails or redundant meetings or colleagues stopping by our desk? If you work in an open floor plan office, you know how miserable it can be as a hotbed of distraction. We blame our tech and we don't realize how often we're distracted by all of these other type of external triggers that turns out are a much more pernicious source of distraction. But if you really want to get to the mother of distraction, the real root cause of why we get distracted, we have to go a little deeper. The external trigger, these are just one form of triggers that can move us towards traction or distraction. But it turns out that most distraction doesn't start from outside of us, but in fact, most distraction starts from within us. These are called internal triggers. That if we want to understand why we get distracted, why do we do things against our best interest, we have to understand why do we do anything and everything. And if you ask most people, what's the nature of human motivation, they're going to give you some version of carrots and sticks, right? This is called Freud's pleasure principle. And it says that everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Turns out neurologically, it ain't true. That's not what's happening in the brain. What's really happening in the brain is that all behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. Everything is about pain. Even the pursuit of pleasure, wanting to feel good, is itself psychologically destabilizing. This is called the homeostatic response. We see it in the body. If we feel cold, the body gets us to put on a jacket. If we feel hot, we take it off. If we feel hunger pangs, we eat. When we're stuffed, oh, that doesn't feel good, we stop eating. And the same is true psychologically. If we're lonely, check Facebook. If we're uncertain, we Google. If we're bored, check ESPN, stock prices, sports scores, Reddit, YouTube, all of these products and services cater to these uncomfortable emotional states. So that means fundamentally, if we want to control our attention and choose our life, we have to acknowledge the fact that time management is pain management. I don't care what life hack you learned or what guru tells you to take cold showers at 4 a.m., None of that stuff works unless we fundamentally understand the reason we get distracted is because we don't want to feel something. And if we don't get a grip on how to deal with the, that discomfort, we will always be distracted by something. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, I wasn't sure exactly where you were going with that with, with the reference to um, a, a couple of those points, but you tied it in really well at the end. 
uh, which I think was interesting because originally I was like thinking to myself, you know, I think one of the problems with like kind of Freud's idea, the the stick and carrot is like, it it, it is kind of one dimensional. And I think the idea of like, um, kind of pain avoidance, um, initially kind of, it kind of felt that way, but I see what you're saying when you put it in that context. Um, because I, I immediately what came to mind were, were the people who, who climb mountains or the warriors, the boxers, the fighters, um, there's a drive, there's a drive towards the, yeah. Yeah. So, so explain that to me. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about that. Sure. I actually talked to an, I talked to an NFL player uh, a few weeks ago who was like, well, that can't be true because look, I would put myself through hell every time I'd go on the field. Right. What, what wasn't I, I, that was painful. And then, you know, after, yeah. So after a few minutes of talking, he said, you know what, you're right near because actually the reason I went on the field and allowed myself to keep getting beat up is because the pain of not going on the field of disappointing my family, my fans was way worse than the pain of getting on that field. And so that's the way the brain works. The brain gets us to do things even when we want pleasure, right? Think about it. When we want something pleasurable, the brain doesn't get us to act because it felt good. The brain gets us, I'm sorry, the brain doesn't get us to act because it feels good. It gets us to act because it felt good. There's actually two different brain systems. One is about liking and one is about wanting. The liking system imparts memories about what felt good in the past. The wanting system spurs us with discomfort to get us to act, to get that thing that felt good. But the desire, the motivation, the wanting, the craving, there's a reason we say love hurts, are all because they feel uncomfortable. Even the pursuit of pleasure is itself psychologically destabilizing. Hmm. So let's dive into this because this is, this is definitely where I want to go with this, like in terms of practical application for this. I think that the theory is interesting. Um, it, it feels right. Like when I think about it, like in terms of like applicability and, and also think about like the triggers. And this is something I've, I've thought about for a long time. And I've, I guess you could say in the last few years, definitely was on like a, you know, we'll say a, a life hacking type of binge. And, and one of those is of course, you know, removing distractions, getting more, becoming more productive. You know, and, and it's interesting. I've, 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 what I've found is that for sure, like, like you mentioned at the beginning, it's like, you can shut off the, you know, distractions and we can probably talk about that from your phone, from these other things, but you know, you'll still have a tendency to kind of be drawn into these things. Um, I, even though I've turned off like my phone notifications, I can't like block out websites, block out social media and stuff like that. I still find myself getting distracted by things like, Oh, well, I'm going to edit when I should be writing. Right. Or things like that. And I think you talk about that in the book too, even when you were writing the book, how you'd find yourself distracted. So I'm kind of curious, you know, let, let's put aside the idea of like the digital distraction, um, although we can come back to it, but when it comes to kind of focusing on the task at hand and actually getting, getting it done when you're, when, when you should be in, in it, doing it and, you know, getting it finished. Um, I feel like that's where people struggle a lot, or that's where like they'll let themselves get, get, uh, you know, um, where they become distracted, whether they allow it or not. But how do we kind of combat that piece? Yeah, so there's three things that we can do to master our internal triggers. We can reimagine the trigger itself, we can reimagine our temperament, and we can reimagine the task. Uh, and this is a whole section of the book, so I'm not gonna be able to you know, go over every detail, but essentially what this means is we can see it differently. So reimagining the trigger is about coping with that discomfort in a healthier way. So if you don't do this step first, by the way, there's four big steps, four big strategies to becoming indistractable and mastering the internal trigger is just the first step. 
But um, that that is it's a it's the most important step that if we can reimagine the internal trigger, if we can see it differently, so that we can cope with it in a healthier manner. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy about the self help industry is that we've been told that if we're not happy all the time, if we're dissatisfied, uh, if we're discontent, there's something wrong with us. And I think that is incredibly unhelpful because the fact is nothing could be further from the truth that we are designed for dissatisfaction. And if you think about it, that feeling of wanting more, that, that thing that keeps us striving, that is what makes our species so awesome, right? It's because we are perpetually perturbed that we keep striving for more, right? That's why we, why we invent things, why we go to the moon, why we overturn despots. It's all about discomfort, dissatisfaction. That's what drives us. And so the first step is to realize that we need to stop buying this bullshit that if we're not happy all the time, then something's broken with us. No, we are designed this way. The question is, how do we channel that discomfort towards traction rather than distraction? Now, what most people do, they're either blamers or shamers. The blamers say, ah, you see, it's Facebook. It's my iPhone. It's Slack. It's my boss. Something's doing it to me. The shamers, they say, man, maybe I'm lazy. I'm, you see, I have a short attention span. I have an addictive personality. There's something wrong with me. And neither of those answers typically are right. Now, some people do have a pathology, right? Some people have obsessive compulsive disorder, addiction disorders. There's all kinds of actual pathologies out there, but almost nobody has them, frankly. Very few people actually suffer these. And not, that's not to minimize it. It's just to say, if you have it, take care of it, all right? It's something that needs to be managed with a professional. But the vast majority of people are not actually addicted. <laughs> they just think they are, but they're not. Uh, and so what we do is neither of those solutions are the right solution. Not, we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We need to understand that the solution is to change how we view these things, to reimagine them. And so instead of getting contemptuous with our discomfort, we need to get curious about it. Simple steps like writing down that feeling, right? That you know, it, it, for me, if, if I was writing and it was difficult and I was stuck and I was feeling boredom, anxiety, stress, fear, whatever it might be, simply writing down that sensation according to acceptance and commitment therapy is a huge step to starting to get control over that sensation. Then we can use techniques like the 10-minute rule to tell ourselves that we can give in to that distraction in just 10 minutes of surfing the urge, of feeling that uncomfortable sensation, exploring it with curiosity rather than contempt has been shown to be a very effective technique to help keep us on track. What we don't want to do is pure abstinence. You know, when we tell ourselves, don't do it, whatever you do, that often backfires. Uh, for example, if I told you right now, whatever you do, don't think about a white bear. That's all you can think about is the white bear, right? <laughs> because when you tell yourselves with strict abstinence, don't do it, that's all you can think about. And so what we want to do instead is to surf the urge and tell ourselves something like, in 10 minutes, I can give into that distraction. I can have that piece of chocolate cake. I can go check YouTube or email or whatever it is that, that I want to do in just 10 minutes. And so I'll oftentimes just tell my phone, set a timer for 10 minutes. And for 10 minutes, I have two choices. I can either surf the urge with curiosity rather than contempt or get back to the task at hand. And nine times out of 10, if I just give myself a little bit of space, to surf that urge, wait out 10 minutes, I'm back at work at the thing I, I wanted to originally do. I love that. So, you know, this is interesting. That makes sense. The idea of like not having it to be like so black and white for the small things. But I also think it's interesting, you know, I've, I found like in terms of kind of just experimenting with this kind of stuff with myself, um, 
I've actually, I quit uh, drinking alcohol completely. Like I think actually it's October now. So this would be like two, I think two years now. And it was like a black and white thing. And I'm, I, it's not like I have anything against it. And it's not like I was an alcoholic or anything like that. I was just like, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to turn this off right now and just see how it goes. And then the second thing I did it too was media, um, like uh, news. So I used to be really, uh, what I would have said the word flippantly, maybe like uh, addicted to news, but just like always like reading it and being so into it. And now I haven't, I haven't read like a newspaper or, or I, don't, I don't even know what's going on um, at all, except that I would guess that it's probably the same thing that's been going on like a year <laughs> yeah. ago. So like the main things, the main drivers of my distractions, stuff like that, I've kind of, I, I have totally blocked out. And I like the idea of though of zooming in on small things that aren't that like consequential and you're probably going to do anyway, check your phone, check email, these little things, just 10 minutes, yeah. block it out for 10 minutes and then just get after the work you got. So, and, and I'm all for that, by the way, you know, th this is, there's a technique I describe in the book called progressive extremism and progressive extremism says that you can take a small step, but do it for the rest of your life. So for me, I knew that sugary soda was not doing me any good. Uh, I haven't, I haven't excised alcohol like you have, but I, I knew that sugary soda was not, was not serving me. And so I didn't say that's it. I'm never going to have soda ever again. I said, uh, I'm never going to drink soda in my house anymore. Why? Because it was easy. And it's something I know I could do forever. You know, I hate diets. And this is why I don't like some of the advice out there of take a 30 day digital detox. No, that's silly. If it's temporary, you know what you're going to do at the end of the 30 days, you're going to come back with a vengeance, right? Just like a, one of these stupid detox diets. You know what you do on day 31, you eat and you know, you eat then everything and then some, uh, so instead yeah. what we want to do is to say, okay, what can I remove from my life for the rest of my life permanently, but in a very small step. So for me, not drinking soda at home was easy. I could still have diet soda, but not at home. And then I said, okay, no diet soda unless I'm on, or so no soda unless I'm on an airplane. And I can do that for the rest of my life. And then I said, okay, only diet soda. And then pr progressively, right? But with an extreme, right? An extreme meaning for the rest of my life, not temporarily. That was this rule I follow. So that now I, I never have soda, <laughs> right? But it took a long time. It took years. And that's okay. What's the rush? What's the rush? People want like a, you know, P90X or a 30-day plan. What the hell is the rush, right? This is something you want to do for the rest of our lives. And it's okay to take those steps. Now, some things, you know, this book is really about understanding the different tools at your disposal. Something, you know, you can't swear off email. You know, I hate these books that say, oh, just stop using email and social media for 30 days. I can't. My job depends on it. Give up email. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is my livelihood. Uh, how many people can go to their boss and say, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want to use email for 30 days. I'm doing a digital detox. Give me a break. It doesn't work. And so we can't just excise things from our life this way. We have to learn how to use them in the, in the right way. And some of that means, sometimes that means upgrading our skill set. Talk to me about how you, uh, maybe that's the, that's the lead in from that comment, this idea of the skill set. And maybe that ties into the, like the task, reimagining the task and making it more entertaining too. Because I've, and, and I know you go into this in the book, but maybe you can explain that idea. Sure. Because obviously one of the, the ways we get distracted is, you know, maybe the, the work at hand, Sucks. Uh, we find boring. Yes. And that obviously is, is a mental frame. Yeah. So talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So let me bust another myth here. I love busting myths. The book is a lot about overturning apple carts. And, and some people might not like uh, everything that's in the book because it, there's a lot of beliefs in here that that are just not true and, and, or, or misapplied, I should say. So uh, a few years ago, there was a, a researcher by the name of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who had this concept of flow. And flow is wonderful. Flow is this state that when you're doing a project, time, just, you know, time becomes irrelevant. You're just so into the task at hand. It's wonderful. 
And where we see this is with athletes, with artists, with people who are super immersed in the task at hand. And some people claim that flow is kind of the answer to everything. And it's not. Because I haven't seen anyone ever get into flow while doing their taxes. It doesn't work that way, <laughs> right? Like it, flow is wonderful if it's a task you already like and you want to enjoy more deeply. But what do you do about the stuff that sucks? What do you do about the stuff you just don't want to do? Well, in this case, you want to use a different technique that flow doesn't really work well for the techniques you don't want to do. What you want to learn how to do is to do what Egan Bogos, who's a researcher at Georgia Tech, who taught me this technique, calls play anything. Now, playing anything is not about enjoyment. We have to rid ourselves of this idea that playing something has to be pleasurable. You're never going to enjoy it. What you can do is two things to add constraints which help you pass the time while doing it. And these, what we want to do is not, you know, many people will say, well, is this kind of like, you know, Mary Poppins, add a spoonful of sugar to stuff, you know, like reward yourself with a badge or gamification. No, that stuff generally doesn't work. Those are extrinsic rewards. We want to think about intrinsic motivators. We know that extrinsic rewards don't work very well at all, especially if it's a task you have to do repeatedly. Instead, what Bogos advises is two things. Number one, you want to look for the variability. Look for the things that are different in that job you have to do, right? What are the constraints that you can work under that have some element of mystery or variability and focus more intensely on them? Not with a spoonful of sugar by zooming out and saying, oh, if I just get through this, you know, I'll, I'll reward myself with, a, with an ice cream. No, zoom in more intensely to find all the variability and nuance that makes that task potentially beautiful. Then what you want to do is in addition to focusing more intently on the task, is to give yourself some kind of constraint that you can work under that gives yourself a, 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 a goal to accomplish in that task. So uh, Bogos talks about how he learned to love cutting his grass and how he hated originally cutting his grass, right? It's a task most people uh, don't enjoy. And so what he did, he dove more intently in the, in, into the task, found the variability and added constraints. He found he, he wanted to know all about the different grass growing conditions and the different kind of sod he could use and how he could add constraints by saying, could I accomplish you know, the optimal path for cutting my grass? And all of this sounds nutso until you remember that people have found ways to enjoy things that you probably find miserable. And how do they do that, right? Why is it, you know, if, making coffee to me sounds like work. I would never do that, you know, joyfully. And yet, there's this barista at this coffee shop down the street from me who loves making the perfect cup of coffee. Uh, I have another friend who just loves working on cars. He's a total car head. I mean, he just loves working on cars. Are you kidding me? Like that would be miserable. I would hate working on a car. Why does he love working on the car? Because he focuses more intensely on it and adds constraints. Uh, I have another friend who loves to quilt, okay? And, and this, is, this is her passion. Originally, she didn't like it. Now she loves it. Again, she dove more intensely into the task and added constraints. And so that's how we can learn how to play anything and reimagining the task. And for those who are listening, I th you know, because I know a lot of the audience are entrepreneurs, founders, creators, and stuff like that. Um, people who kind of have to be more self-driven and for their own businesses and their own kind of livelihood. I think part of that too, it, it, it sounds like it, it, and one way to kind of apply that is, is I guess, thinking of, of what is the 
you know, what is the objective with your business? Cause I think some people get burned out on it too. Like when they're trying to bootstrap a business or get something started and some things that are interesting can lose their luster. But I think if you reframe it and say, well, it's like, how could I do this faster? How could I do this in you know, five minutes instead of five hours? How could I create a system around this? So I don't have to, you know, spend time on this, you know, things like that. There you go. Yeah. That's what I was going to add. That's exactly right. Maybe, you know, if, if, if when, when it comes to any internal trigger, we, there's only two answers. We can either find ways to cope with that internal trigger, find ways to deal with it more healthfully, or fix the source of the problem itself, <laughs> right? So if you hate doing a particular task, maybe the challenge is to find a way to find a system around not having to do that task anymore. That's a perfectly legit thing. And if day after day after day, you just hate that particular thing, that might be a source of discomfort that you are trying to escape from, in which case it may be better to fix that source of the problem itself because you might not be able to cope your way out of it. So one of the things that, that does come up was this idea like, and you have this in the book, it says addicts' beliefs regarding their powerlessness was just as significant in term, determining whether they would relapse after treatment as their level of uh, physical dependence. You, you, you talked about this a little bit before earlier in the conversation too, I believe, um, but it's kind of fresh in my mind. I'm curious if you can break that down because my thought is that or, or, or what I was thinking originally, uh, was that, you know, when you hear about people who are going through things like say something like Alcoholics Anonymous, I think the way they start is by saying like, I am an addict. And that seems to be an effective, uh, program also. But again, I have no experience. I have no knowledge of this. I haven't studied it or learned anything about it. So I am kind of curious, like how that works. Yeah. And uh, so Alcoholics Anonymous is, reasonably relatively effective. Uh, and that rate is about 12%. What the studies show us that Alcoholics Anonymous is about only 12% of people who uh, partake in that program actually uh, stick with it, uh, which is not great. <laughs> 12% is, is not fantastic. Um, but even, even with a program like Alcoholics Anonymous, it's, it's what, what helps people get through it and stick with it. Uh, the most successful folks are the ones who become the sponsors. Interestingly enough, that's, I think if there's any bit of genius to, to that program, it's that it's this model of each one help one. And that's, that's actually something I talk about in the book as well, that we can use in our own lives to fight distraction is this idea of making what's called an identity pack. When you start calling yourself with a moniker, whether that moniker is, I am X days sober. Okay. This can also work in reverse, by the way. Right? This is why I bristle at this term addict and addiction, uh, because for most people, addiction is temporary. Right? The, the number one recovery program in America, in the world, in fact, is not Alcoholics Anonymous. It's aging out. It's people who were addicted at one time in their life. Their life changes. They don't need an escape from an uncomfortable reality like they did before, and they stop using. Right? This happens all the time, even with very addictive substances. And so... What, what we find, or they stop, or they, some, many people don't even stop using, they just stop abusing, right? There are many cases of people who were alcoholic and had a problem with alcohol and then now drink moderately. That, that's very common. It's not widely reported, but that actually is, is the case. And so when it comes to distraction as well, uh, when we can call ourselves by some kind of moniker, we can use what's called an identity pact to keep us from getting distracted. So for example, you know, we, you know, there's this joke, how do you know someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. And the reason they tell you is because it, in fact, reinforces their identity. And it makes it easier for us to do what we say we are. So it turns out that a devout Muslim doesn't need to expend willpower or self-control to not drink alcohol. Why? 
because a devout Muslim does not drink alcohol. A vegan does not consume meat. It's just who they are. And so it becomes what they do. And so we can use the similar principle of a moniker for becoming indistractable to help us prevent getting distracted by saying, nope, I am indistractable. Sorry, I don't return emails within you know, five minutes of getting them. I'm indistractable. I have other priorities. I, I do things a little bit differently. And I'm hoping that that can become a moniker that, that we all understand, that people are proud of the fact that they don't want their attention and their lives to be manipulated by other people and controlled by others but that in fact, they want to control their own attention and their own life. So we're coming up to the time here, but I did want to get to this one last bit if we have the time. And it was to ask you, like if we zoom in on the calendar or, or your, your timeline to make sure you get done the things you want to get done and you're, you're living with more intention, walk me through some of your tips or suggestions or strategies for that to actually make the best use of our time. Sure, sure. So this is the second step. So there's four big strategies to becoming indistractable. The first is to master the internal triggers. The second is to make time for traction. The third is to hack back the external triggers. And finally, the fourth is to prevent distraction with pacts. Now, that second technique is about making time for traction. And this is incredibly important. And it's very simple, very, very effective. It turns out that two-thirds of Americans don't keep a calendar. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you think about how much time and money we put into protecting our stuff, right? We put our money in a bank. We have security systems for our home. We have alarms on our cars. But when it comes to our time, oh yeah, come on by. Take as much of it as you want. So our work takes time. Our kids want our time. Our spouses want our time. Whatever's happening in the news, on Twitter, on Facebook, all of this stuff eats up our time. And so the solution to that is to plan ahead. If there's one motto I want people to remember from my work, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. If the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, it's too late. You've lost. If the cigarette is lit and you're about to take a puff, you're going to smoke. If you sleep next to your cell phone and you're closer to your device than you are with your lover, well, then you're going to reach for it first thing in the morning. So the idea here is to plan ahead. If you don't plan your day, someone else will. And that means we have to plan our time down to the minute. And so this is a practice called time boxing. It's been shown in thousands of studies to be a highly effective way to make sure you do what it is you say you're going to do. And it just involves planning time for the things that are important to you so that you can live according to your values. Now, I'll give you a link in the show notes that I built a free tool that makes this very, very easy to do because I found most tools out there were very complicated. There's no, you know, it's free and there's, you don't even have to log in. You can just use it. But the idea here is that you want to know what your week looks like because that is the only way to tell the difference between traction and distraction is to see on your calendar what it is ahead of time that you plan to do. Everything that's on your calendar is traction. Anything that is not on that calendar is a distraction. And then what we want to do is to synchronize our calendar with the stakeholders in our life. So we can do a schedule sync with our, with our husband and wife. We can do it with our colleagues at work, with our boss so that we all are on the same page around how we want to spend our time. And this is, this is revolutionary. I mean, this will really increase your quality of life, especially at work. You know, so many of us as managers or as employees, we only think about the outputs, right? What we want to get done every day, but we don't think about the inputs. And your input is your time, right? You wouldn't go to a baker and say, hey, I need 100 loaves of bread, but I don't know how much flour I have. And I don't know how much uh, you know, uh, sugar and salt and yeast I have. So can I get those 100 loaves of bread? He's going to say, no, of course not. I need to have the input in order to give you your output. 
And so we have to do the same thing with our time. We have to synchronize our schedules so that we can get clear about how we are going to spend our time to make sure that we don't get distracted. I love it. Solid place to finish up. And again, there's just really, there's kind of too much to the book to cover it all anyway in one conversation. I'm going to highly encourage people who are listening to this, go pick up Indistractable. You can find it at any bookstore. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, Nir, thank you for joining us on In the Trenches. This was a real pleasure, man. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating review. Just go to tomworkus.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you to iTunes where you can leave a five-star rating review. And that really helps spread the word about this podcast. And finally, if you need help growing your online business or generating new traffic leads and sales at a profit, reach out to me at tom at tomworkus.com or head over to the website tomworkus.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's it for today. Stay frosty.